CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Duke-Masaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Having a Ben Jarofsky show as I speak. It's Friday, September 17th, 2021. Here's a headline in the New York Times. Here's a headline that nobody saw coming. And don't act like you did, people. Come on. Don't act like you knew this was coming. U.S. defense pact with Australia enrages France. Lift over rift over China policy. Nuclear submarine sale raises stakes in the Pacific region. Nobody saw that coming. Absolutely nobody saw that. Definitely Joe Biden's people didn't see it coming. And we may uh, have a little conversation about that just to uh, just to entertain everybody uh, with that topic, which nobody knows anything about. Uh, without further ado, I'm going to ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself so we could take this away. Go ahead, distinguished guest. All right, Ben, it's great to be back. I'm David Ferris. I'm an associate professor of political science at Roosevelt University and the author of It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics. And it's great to be back on the show. We've got a lot to talk about. Yeah. Yes. Um. So it's time to fight dirty uh, is the title of his opus. I urge everybody to run around run and get it if you haven't already, or at least go to the library and read it. Uh, and David, I feel as though the Democrats may have shown, may have displayed a little something. Now we'll get to uh, your discourse. Uh, David is uh, an expert on foreign policy, even if he denies that he is, but he knows so much about foreign policy. Uh, political science professor at Roosevelt University knows a lot about foreign policy. We'll get it, your explanation of what the hell's going on with France, the United States, and Australia, China, etc. But uh, it's time to fight dirty. We'll start at the top, the California recall election. Uh, you've been on the show shaking your head in dismay uh, at the na- naivete and the clumsiness, to put it mildly, and the arrogance of Gavin Newsom and the Democrats in California that put themselves in such a vulnerable position. Uh, and then come, what was it, Tuesday? As your story in the week put it, it just was over instant. All that anguish, all that angst, open window, throw out, voters show up and vote, pulverize uh, the recall effort and just pulverize the Republicans, pathetic as they are in California. David, take the deep dive and explain what happened and did the Dems finally learn how to fight dirty? Yeah, so, I mean, obviously the 
result of that election is very encouraging, not just for California, but I think for Democrats nationally in a couple of different ways. But it's worth just so going back like a month ago when, when I was on the show, you know, we were panicking about this, right? Um, and the, there were polls, it was, there was at least one poll that showed Newsom losing the recall outright. A bunch of other polls had it within three, four or five points, uh, which is just crazy. I mean, he, he won election by 21 points in 2018. This is a state Joe Biden won by 29 points. Um, there should not be a competitive election here, um, especially the particular way that it's done, according to California's completely deranged constitution, um, <laughs> which allows them to force a, a, a recall election. Uh, what is it like 14 months before the next general election? It's just like the stupidest thing you could possibly imagine doing. Um, and uh, I was pretty like apoplectic about the strategy of Governor Newsom, which was um, particular to the the mechanics of the recall where, you, you know, there's one question that's like, do we recall the dude or not? Um, voting no means you want to keep him. <laughs> voting yes means you want to get rid of him. I, I was worried about that. Um, and then there's a second part where Newsom is not a candidate anymore. And it's just like a giant jungle primary with like 10,000 people running and you could become governor with like 8% of the vote. Um, and so that was the situation a month ago. The person leading the second question was this, uh, uh, this outrageous right-wing talk show host named Larry Elder, who like doesn't believe in masks and doesn't believe in vaccine mandates and, you know, just whatever other ridiculous Trump position you would impute to someone, he holds that position. Um, and so there was a very real chance that because Gavin Newsom like went to a party last year um, with some lobbyists and was like seen eating unmasked in a really fancy restaurant, that California might get stuck with this like rep Republican nut job for at least a year. Uh, who could possibly replace Diane Feinstein, who's, you know, looks like she's near death. And so it's just, it was like a disaster waiting to happen. And then, I, you know, election day happened and uh, the polls had, had moved significantly in Newsom's direction, but I don't think anybody saw um, these results coming. I mean, he, he's going to win the recall election by more than he won election in the first place in 2018 in an off year, off date. I mean, who, who holds an election in, in mid-September? Um, so it's, uh, it's a, it's a big win for Democrats and, uh, you know, um, I still think that their strategy of not running a candidate for the second part was crazy. Um, and they, and they got lucky, but, um, you know, but the, the, they did win and that's all that really matters, uh, for, for Newsom. I, I don't take a pretty dim view of his future political prospects at this point, but, um, certainly I think he's repositioned himself to get elected and again next year. Um, and we won't see California, the biggest state in the country, implement a bunch of like, you know, pro-COVID policies, <laughs> like, you know, banning um, like, like schools from uh, masking kids and stuff. So, um, so that's all good. That's all really encouraging. And uh, it was good to see. It was it was much like the 2008 presidential election, you know, where like I sat down at the bar and then Obama was called president like three seconds later. I was like, I didn't even get a beer yet. Come on, man. <laughs> Um, it was over really quickly. Definitely. Uh, I must take this uh, opportunity, David, to uh, offer an apology to the uh, voters of California. I believe I called them too dumb to figure out uh, that no meant yes. I struggle with that myself, California, so I'm not saying I'm better than you. I have uh, dyslexia. And as David just pointed out, I, it confounded me that a no vote was actually a yes vote for Democrats. And I, it was counterintuitive. 
so the whole thing was preposterous. And I worked from the assumption uh, that voters in California were probably going to be as dumb as voters in the city of Chicago, who may be the single dumbest bunch of voters I've ever encountered. And I've lived among you Chicagoans since 1981. Uh, and so, but you proved me wrong. Okay. You figured it out. <laughs> David, I, I submit to you that once California Democrats figured out that no meant yes, <laughs> It was over, okay, but it took a yeah. while. They were confused. They weren't paying attention. They were, they were watching, you know, uh, Empire or whatever. Go ahead, you know. So I, th- I do believe there was just a matter of a couple things. One, education, just figuring it out, uh, and two, to your main point of your latest essay. This is what I was getting at: uh, that Democrats are finally figuring out how to fight Republicans. You can't play around. This no man, this Joe Manchin bipartisan stuff doesn't work. If you want to win, you got to put Donald Trump's head on whoever is out there as a Republican. Put Larry Elder's head on it. Let the world see how batshit crazy the Republican Party is. Don't run away from it. Don't pretend like you're allies or you know, every now and then you can get along. No, 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 no. You got to let the world know how insane they are. And I, I got to give credit to the California Democrats. Uh, I believe they did that. Uh, do you think they deserve the credit I'm giving them, David? They deserve some of it. Okay. I mean, <laughs> here's the thing. Uh, when, when those polls started tightening in July, um, that was back when we all thought COVID was over. Right. And so, or maybe not, maybe not everybody thought that, right? <laughs> but a lot of people did. And, uh, and so when Larry Elder in like July is saying, I'm against masks, there were a bunch of like, you know, blue check liberals on Twitter who were like, yeah, I can't believe they're making us mask again. Like why do vaccinated people have to wear masks? There was a lot of pushback about the, the reimposition of these policies. And as the situation has spiraled out of control, um, I think it's become clear to a lot of people that were upset that we had to start wearing masks again that, that it's like, it's just a thing that we have to do because the situation has gotten so bad. And California then, you know, over those ensuing four, five, six weeks, stood in increasingly stark contrast with some of these other states that um, <clears throat> it's not just like about masks, it's about banning local school districts from, from requiring their students and staff to mask, which is what's going on in Florida and Texas and these kinds of places. Um, and it's about the vaccine mandates, which is uh, a consequence of the frustration that I think the vaccinated public feels with the unvaccinated public. Um, I don't know how popular mandates would have been eight weeks ago, um, but at this point, um, people place most of the blame for the fact this is still going on on, on unvaccinated people. Um, it's not the only factor, but it's probably the most significant one. And so here you have the, the California Republican candidate for this office forced to align himself with these very unpopular pro-COVID policies because that's where the, the like completely deranged Republican base is now. And the Republican base in California is just as crazy um, as, as anywhere else. They, they had plausible candidates. The former mayor of San Diego was a Republican who was running to replace Newsom and he couldn't get any traction because he, you know, uh, he thinks the sky is blue and up is down. And so that just doesn't fly in today's Republican Party, um, where Larry Elder is, I think, uh, he's like a feature, not a bug. I mean, this is this is the kind of person that the movement lines up with now. This is who they need. Like, you have to be crazy. Um, you have to be a science denier 
um, you have to be outrageous and say outrageous things and and be be just a, a constant lightning rod. And I think the more time went on, the more Californians realized that this was who was going to replace Newsom if this is uh, if he was recalled. The more they said, you know, no thanks. I mean, I no no love loss for Newsom probably, but um, they don't want to they don't want to be turned into into Texas where parents are forced to send their kids into schools where they're completely defenseless. You know, the teachers aren't wearing masks and the kids aren't wearing masks. And, you know, have all the debate you want about masking policies, but you look at a map of the hot, hot, hot spots in the U.S. right now. And, it, and it's like, you know, I, I think it's obvious that masks are having some effect, you know. Um, so, and I, I, don't, I don't like the things any more than anybody else does, okay? So <laughs> don't get me wrong. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think that's what happened there. I think, um, you, you know, Democrats kind of, had to tell their voters that this was happening because why would you think there'd be, I was like, wait, wait, there's a governor election next year. Why is there one right now? Um, and so that's, that's a voter education thing. I think they did a great job there and they did a great job tying elder to Trump, which is something the democratic party nationally just like could not do last year. Um, this, that the whole party just ran against Trump as if he was like, you know, unattached to a political movement or a political party. Um, and they didn't do that here. Uh, and of course, there was only one office up for grabs here, but it was a good strategy. Um, that is, you have to make sure that the voters know it's not just this crazy person or that crazy person. It's a group of crazy people and they control the second largest political party in the United States. And they are a huge threat to take over next year and in 2024. So it was good to me that um, that being on the right side of pandemic policies really paid off for Newsom. Uh, you know, this is a Democratic landslide state, right? So, I mean you would expect the Democrat to win. But the fact they didn't really cut into his margin, the fact they didn't really even cut into Biden's margin um, in, a, in a weird off-year election for a governor who had lost a lot of popularity for, I think, pretty good reason, <laughs> that's a good sign, right? That means um, that our voters next year could conceivably be convinced that there is still an emergency important enough that they got to turn out like they turned out in 2020. That is, we could maybe avoid that midterm year turnout shortfall that has plagued Democrats um, in every election but 2018, um, really since since 2006, right? So, um, so that was those were all really positive signs um, that made me a little bit less apocalyptic about what might happen next year. Um, it's always important not to read too much into a single election result, but I mean, this is a big state, right? And and what happens in the California House, you know, the, the race for the House in California will have enormous impact on whether Democrats can can hold the House of Representatives where they have a really narrow advantage. So I was really pleased with Tuesday night. Um, I think Republicans need to, you know, if they if they care, they, they would have a sit down and think about, like, why do we keep opposing policies that are supported by like 67 percent of the public? Like, Why are we taking the side of, um, you know, these uh, these voluntarily uh, unvaccinated um, conspiracy theorists who are not popular. You know, the vaccine mandates through employers are, are popular. People want to be protected from their from their stupidest co colleagues. Um, and they want their kids to be protected from the stupidest children of their stupidest uh, neighbors. And so that's, that's what Newsom wants to do. That's what the American people want to do. Um, and if the pandemic is still an issue next year, which I think it's going to be, um, Republicans are really in trouble on that. I mean, I just don't know how else to put it. I mean, Ron DeSantis is underwater in Florida, approval rise. So I don't know. I, I, I would, if I was a Republican strategist, I would not be happy this week. That's, that's all I can say. Thank God I'm not. Well, 
And if a Republican strategist is not happy, I'm happy. Because uh, the Republicans are batshit crazy, and I'll just say that. All right, let's break it down. Uh, put the Democratic challenge uh, to taking the House, I think, is all about gerrymandering, so we'll put that to the side. Uh, you hit something on You're absolutely correct when the Republicans have an issue. And I, I know you don't follow uh, Illinois politics as obsessively as I do. Few people do. But I see it playing out in the gubernatorial uh, primary where Republicans, a new entrant in the race uh, this week, guy named Jesse Sullivan, is positioning himself as a moderate. And just follow me as I explain what moderate means uh, in the state of Illinois. Moderate means he admits that he got vaccinated, but he won't, does not support mandates and believes it's a personal decision. That's a moderate. In other words, he's afraid of upsetting MAGA. Moderate means he thinks Joe Biden won the election, but come on, yet that's ancient history. Let's not discuss it, even though most MAGA people who control the Republican Party think the election was stolen. So he doesn't, in other words, in those two issues alone, he's afraid of taking a position uh, that he uh, will hurt him with the general public, but he can't denounce it because it would block him from getting the nomination. This is a moderate. And oh, 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 he's also against abortion rights. Follow me on this one, David. But his argument is, even though he kind of supports the Texas abortion bill, his argument is, I don't control the Democratic votes in the House, so what? it's irrelevant, which is hardly a winning ticket or strategy for it's not going to satisfy anybody. The, the anti-abortion zealots are going to want him to be championing that, and pro-choice people are going to want him to be denouncing it. I don't know how you win. Help me out here. You know what I'm saying? There's so much contradictions there. There's so much fear there. I don't know how you can win uh, in a general election. Go ahead. I mean, you can't. Not here. <laughs> right? I mean, they, the only way that Republicans were able to get Bruce Rauner into office was by convincing people that he was he was a moderate and he he and he wasn't like crazy on these um, these social issues like like some of the um, some of the nuttier Republicans in this state are. I mean, he wasn't like you know he, he would like Rauner would not have supported the Texas abortion law, right? um, and so but that's the that's the like the genie eavesification of uh, of the Illinois Republican Party. Right? Um, it just has been obvious for years that. Um, that the, the, the craziest people in the state are gonna we're, we're gonna take over the state Republican Party, and I just don't like. I know that this is the line of almost every elected Republican, right? It's like, I'm vaccinated. You should get vaccinated, but I oppose any policies that is that are gonna increase the vaccination rate, right? Um, and the again, the vaccinated public, or at least a majority of a great majority of the vaccinated public, has really run out of patience with that strategy because the vaccination rate in this country has really plateaued um, over the summer because there's this like battle-hardened group of people that want to die uh, of, a, of a deadly experimental virus rather than get this like free miracle shot. And they just won't budge unless we force them to. Um, and people, um, I don't know if you saw this polling, but <laughs> so like vaccine, so the Biden administration's vaccine mandate for private employers of over hundred people has majority support. Um, but vaccinated people are also just like they're getting radical, like 41 percent of Americans support keeping unvaccinated people out of grocery stores. Okay. 
Um, that, that means like the, the sentiment is growing among people who have done the right thing to essentially put unvaccinated people under house arrest. And the Republican Party thinks that they're going to march out next year and be like, it's a personal choice, everybody, if the pandemic is still raging um, and that they're somehow going to win. It's like, no, man, um, they're going to slowly turn the screws on people and it's going to end the pandemic. That's what's going to happen. Um, it may not happen tomorrow and we may be in for a, you know, a, a somewhat difficult winter. But I do think that by the spring, um, these mandates will have moved enough people uh, people's children, the people that want to vaccinate their kids will have vaccinated their kids. Probably the people that want boosters will have gotten boosters in some way, shape or form. Um, and that means that like the vaccinated public is going to consider things back to normal. They're going to start going to restaurants. The, the economy is going to grow again. Um, the unvaccinated people never change their behavior in the first place, right? <laughs> so many of them will be dead. Um, and, uh, and that'll be the situation heading into the midterms, I think. Um, barring the emergence of a of a truly vaccine escaping variant, which we don't see on the horizon yet. Um, I just don't see how this could possibly pay political dividends for Republicans outside of their, their like sort of fortresses in, uh, in Oklahoma and in the, in the Plain States. I just think it's a really dumb strategy for them. Here too, I mean, obviously, Illinois, right? Like, Illinois is like a democratic state, but it's, so it's just crazy. Well, it, it's, it's curious to see uh, how their strategy will play out uh, in swing states. So how will it play out, let's say, in Georgia or Arizona, uh, or even to a certain degree, I could throw Florida into that mix, although Florida's gone Republican. Uh, did it go Republican the second Obama election? I think Obama won it in 2012. I can't remember, actually, right now. But, yeah, no, uh, Obama won it twice. He won it twice. So it's gone Republican for Trump twice. Uh, and DeSantis is a Trump uh, disciple, so now it's run by Republican. So It'd be curious to see how these states where it's closer to 50-50, uh, the strategy plays. The the upper hand that the Republicans have with this madness has to do with gerrymandering. And get your thoughts on this. Winning back the House uh, will require winning elections that will take place in November 2022 under new maps. The maps that currently exist will not exist when that election uh, is held. Throughout the country, they're remapping reapportioning. I know my listeners are smart enough to know what all this is about, David. Uh, so if the Republicans can successfully gerrymander enough congressional seats, and I've been reading different articles about this number that say, yes, they can. Others that say it's not clear if they can, then they could take back the house, even with this l lunatic uh, anti mask it's and as you say, this really important to emphasize this. It's not just anti-masking and uh anti-vaccine, it's mandates against masking and vaccines. Uh so what's your thoughts on gerrymandering and the impact it will have? Go ahead. Um, you know, it's it's too soon to tell. I mean, I there was a study out today from the Cook Political Report, which said based on the maps that they've seen proposed in the various states so far. Um, they think it's possible that Republicans might net as few as two seats from from just from just gerrymandering. Um, now, I don't buy that because I think that there's an assumption um, that some Republicans in some states are not going to sort of plunge the knife in to the maximum extent that they could, and I think that they will. Um, and so, I I I think that Democrats have to operate on the assumption. Um, 
that we are going to be starting out the next race with a, like down at least five seats from where we are. Um, and that is more seats than it would take to flip the house. So um, if you're handicapping things, right, like Democrats are just at a disadvantage. It's not just because of gerrymandering. It's because of a, like a long-term finding in American politics where people just like to punish the president's party two years in. I don't know, but my pet theory is that maybe that's because the, the you know, a party's core supporters seem to get like nothing that they were promised in the first two years. Um, and maybe that like maybe demoralizes them a little bit. Hello, Joe Biden. Um, but uh, but certainly gerrymandering is a, is a big concern. I think Democrats in, in Illinois and New York in particular, I think have, have shown a willingness to be a little bit more ruthless than we were expecting. Um, and that could save a few seats, but uh, there's, there's just no way to, I, I just don't think there's any way that Democrats are gonna benefit from gerrymandering. Um, and so you have to look at the environment. We Democrats won the national popular vote for the House. You, you know, that's just aggregating a bunch of individual races, right? It's not a perfect metric, but, but about three and a half points uh, last year. And we just, just, just barely kept the House. And so if you just keep the national environment steady, give Democrats a three and a half point lead for the House, on these new maps, I think that we would lose it narrowly. And if you give the Republicans even a slight advantage in the national popular vote for the House, we're gonna get blown out. That's just the dynamics of where our voters are. Um, the fact that Republicans have more opportunities to draw these district lines without any interference from Democrats at all in, in states around the country. And there's some states where I think courts are gonna mess with things, you know, Michigan and, and Wisconsin and Florida um, these are places where courts could step in to prevent unfair maps from being put into place. And I just don't think that they will because uh, for obvious reasons, right? Like, because the judicial, like, uh, the, the GOP judicial strategy is to reinforce Republican power with every possible decision that they can make. Um, so that's, that's the state of play. You know, obviously I think the abortion is going to be a huge issue next year. It's a potentially mobilizing issue for us. Um, Although I don't think that that's guaranteed because the Supreme Court kind of gutted Roe v. Wade without even really announcing that it was doing it, right? Um, and so it's not like there was a day that was like, Roe v. Wade is gone. It was like, they kind of just, they kind of just turned the lights off um, and nobody noticed. Not that nobody noticed, right? But it's not, I don't think it has yet become a tier, a top tier national issue in the way that it needs to be um, if Democrats are gonna capitalize on that politically to say nothing of like, what are we gonna do for the, for the millions and millions of, um, of women in Texas who no longer have reproductive rights. So um, yeah, we gotta be ruthless in our, our own gerrymandering opportunities, unfortunately, I hate to say it, but we do. Um, and Democrats really need to, to settle on a small number of important issues that will resonate with voters where we are on, on the right side of public opinion, where Republicans are being super crazy, <laughs> legitimately. Um, and uh, and tie the whole party to Trump again. That's that's the path, you know. I, I'll uh, put a little positive positivity out there, uh, and this has to do uh, stems in part from my utter obsession right now. I, I alluded to this before we went on the air with the Monica Lewinsky Bill Clinton uh, special uh, series that's on uh, Hulu right now. I urge everybody, if you're a political junkie, to watch it. Ryan Murphy is brilliant, in my humble opinion. The, the, the producer of this and the way he's packaging it. It's a great history lesson. Uh, but uh, I've started doing the deep dive. I'm a little embarrassed to admit this. Not only am I watching the special, I'm reading books 
uh, that I could not bear to read at the, in real time, David, because I found that so upsetting, the whole 1990s impeachment drive. But there's enough distance now where I'm really studying it and seeing what the Republicans did and the impact it had on politics. Uh, and to this point, the impact it had on politics in the 1998 midterms, okay, so there was a, pres- a Democratic president, the Democrats picked up seats. And uh, as opposed to the 1994 midterms or four, four years ago when Newt Gingrich uh, mopped the floor with the Dems. And so that was an instance where Democrats prevailed when they had an incumbent president. And my takeaway, which I will now try out on you, is that when Democrats snooze, they lose. And Democrats get complacent. Uh, they fall in love with their president like they did this with obama uh and uh they just quit uh but in 1998 there was a it was a time politically much like today bitterly divided country the republicans were playing a very strong uh counterattack against bill clinton and fired up the democrats to support bill clinton and the result was seen in those congressional elections that preceded by just a few weeks, the impeachment trial in the Senate. I think we're in a similar situation here where I think it's finally thick. The, the, I think it's finally pierced the thick noggins of Democrats that this is an ongoing fight. It did not end in 2020 November election when Trump was quote unquote defeated, even though he won't admit that he was defeated. Do you follow me? This is like an ongoing, and I, I, my takeaway from California is that Democrats realized that this was an ongoing fight. And I, the part I appreciated the most, there wasn't a lot of jubilation in the aftermath of it. It was like they figured out, all right, this is just one battle. There's like 10 more. We got to go. Let's, we won this one. Let's move on. My sense is, I hate to be optimistic in any way about my beloved Democratic Party, is that they truly may have figured something out. Your thoughts? Am I being too optimistic about Democrats? Or do you think they're just going to go back to their old snoozing uh, routine uh, in the coming years? Go ahead. I mean, it's a tough question. I've got, I, I, instinctively, I have two different answers to this question. Okay. One, I think that the electorate is more energized heading into the midterms, like our electorate is more energized heading into the midterms based on the threat, the ongoing threat of Trumpism and what it represents for this country. Um, And that the pandemic and the sort of the polarization of policies around the pandemic, where Republicans are forced to adopt these like ridiculous, um, unpopular anti-science positions is is like helping to maintain that sense of emergency because there is a democratic, there's like a, a small d democratic emergency threat to our system of government posed by these Republicans. And there's now this like threat posed to your your life and the lives of your children and your grandparents. And um, and then these guys are on the wrong side of that too, right? Um, so you have this thing that I think is, is more abstract to some people, which is like democracy. Um, and I think, I think people generally have like a hard time coming to terms with the fact that like we could actually lose our democracy. Um, even after January 6th, I think there's still people that are like, well, I mean, they arrested the people, so it's fine, right? Um, and now you have that same group of people um, adopting positions that seem, frankly, designed to keep the pandemic going. 
Um, and people are really unhappy and they're directing that unhappiness at the Republicans. Um, I would be more optimistic if I saw this in data about the race for Congress um, in polling for the race of Congress, which I'm not really seeing yet, where the, the, the generic ballot has tightened for Democrats. Some of that could be Afghanistan, which I think is going to be ancient history by next year. Um, but some of it is the sense that, I personally, I, I think of the sense that the Biden administration was not acting aggressively enough about COVID. And now they are. Still, I've, to be honest, still not as aggressive as I'd like them to be, but they are being much more aggressive than they were. Um, and so a national address in which Biden calls out the unvaccinated and is like, we're going to do this, this, and this to you. Um, <clears throat> I think that's energizing for our voters. Um, but uh, we're also going to have to deliver some things out of Congress if we want to have something to run on. So it's, it's really vital that, you know, the progressives and the moderates come to some, some kind of understanding about the spending and infrastructure and, and all the things that are stuffed into that proposed reconciliation bill. Um, I, I guess it's gonna happen on the same timeline that the Republican tax bills, uh, you know, like December, 2017. So some, sometime this year, I assume something will happen with all that stuff, uh, as long as Joe Manchin doesn't fall off his houseboat or whatever. Um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so that'll be good. Um, you know, I've, I've heard some rumors bubbling up that some people are coming around to a voting rights exception to the filibuster. Now, whether the top, the two people that really need to come around on that are coming around, I have no idea. No one, no one else does either. But you could see a world where we're coming into the next summer. Pandemic is in the rear view. We've passed the some version of the For the People Act, or at least voting rights reform. Um, we've passed these big spending bills. We've got like elaborate new programs for like universal childcare and elder care and, and all this stuff. People are getting checks every month for their kids. I mean, you could see a situation where Democrats go in the next fall in a position of much more significant strength than, than I think that we've been assuming. Um, and the Republicans seem to be doing, honestly, just like everything in their power to, to give us that opportunity. And so it's really on Democrats in Congress to make sure that that, that legislation gets passed, that it is properly publicized and messaged and framed. One of my big complaints um, in addition to it's just a stupid waste of time, what is happening right now, is that when you stuff 18 things into a reconciliation bill, it's like, oh, yeah, we're going to put uh, the voting rights in there. We're going to put uh, uh, the uh, care for the elderly. We're going to put uh, new daycare programs. We're going to put uh, the stimulus checks and we're going to put uh, in more infrastructure. You can't then 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 what was it? <laughs> it can't be described by the press as a party line reconciliation vote. A spending vote. It's just that's what the press is going to. Media is going to call it a spending bill, okay? And what what are Democrats going to say instead of being able to be like, yeah, man, we passed the uh, the Diane Feinstein uh, you know elder care law, and we passed the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, and we passed, you know, divide them up so that you can run on them because they have names because they are bills with a name um, rather than this like, you know, unwieldy uh, Frankenstein of fifty different policies that you can't get through with uh, 60 votes, and so you did it this way, which is fine, better than nothing, right? But it, uh, to me, it really, really creates a huge messaging problem. And, uh, yeah, well, and I, uh, I'll, I'll take the messaging problem in exchange for the bills. If I can't, they're so chicken, they won't uh, do away with the filibuster, so this is what we're stuck with. Uh, but I hear what you're saying. Uh, I, um, your thoughts on uh, Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott, the governors, respectively, of Florida and Texas, who uh, 
and I guess you could throw in Christy Nome from, um, was it South Dakota? Am I getting my Dakotas mixed up? It's South Dakota, right? Yeah. Sorry, North Dakota. I, 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 mean, up. I can't keep it. Uh, I, I just uh, I got reversal I South of North Dakota. Um, so they're they're taking the hard stance. They're 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 ride or die. Uh, particularly, I I, I I'm going to just uh, disagree with you slightly. I think that a Texas abortion bill uh, has fired people up. And I, I think that uh, they uh, w- wait till if they if those first prosecutions come down, like the Uber driver who drove the the woman to the abortion clinic or what have you. You know, if they if it gets to that, uh, man, that so I do believe that'll be a, a, a strong, uh, powerful uh, issue come November's elections. But uh, you know, Ron DeSantis, let's just talk about him for a moment. Uh, mandates against mandates. Your essay and uh, the week was really interesting. You pointed out how he's going to court. Uh, like he's going to make school districts pay money. You're going to take money away from education uh, to pay lawyers to fight the suits or pay fines to the state simply because they were exercising their local control. So it completely violates everything they stand for, uh, supposedly about local control. Talk about Ron DeSantis uh, and, you know, his policies. It just seems to me such a losing effort, but maybe I'm missing something. Maybe the I'm too far removed from where the public is. Uh, well, definitely, I don't know Florida. So talk about Ron DeSantis and these hard stances he's taking. Yeah, I mean, I think that Ron DeSantis has let those like CPAC straw poll numbers go to his head, you know, where he's he's leading the non-Trump field for 2024. Like as soon as you put Trump in there, like, he becomes the nominee, right? There's just, there's no way they're going to stop Trump if he runs. But I think there's a lot of people that think it's just a vanity project. He's going to threaten to run and threaten to run and th- threaten to run and then be like, nah, I like golf too much, whatever, you know, or he'll die. Um, and so <laughs> just, I mean, look at the man. So, uh, so DeSantis thinks that he has like figured things out because as of two months ago, he, he had done all these reckless things with public health and he was still popular in Florida. Um, and so he just kept at it, you know, as of June, he was sending merchandise out on his website, uh, like beer koozies that say, don't foul my Florida and this kind of stuff. And so big shock vaccination rates are not that great in, in certain places in Florida. Um, and, and he basically sort of death marched kids back into schools in, in August and prevented schools from imposing mask mandates. Now, um, maybe Florida is not a place where a statewide school mask mandate can fly, but that's different than preventing the districts from doing it. And like, you are depriving them of the opportunity to implement policies that they see fit to keep their students, staff and faculty safe. Um, and that is not going over well. It would be one thing also if it hadn't backfired in a public health sense, right? If like you'd done all this stuff and then Florida's cases were going down and everybody was like, see, just like last year, you know, where does Ron DeSantis go to get his apology? Remember this article? Um, yeah, this is so stupid. Where does Ron get his and I'm like, I know, how about the morgue? You know, if a lot of his citizens are there. Um, so, but- Where did that uh, article run? Where did that, that article National run? Review. Oh, Na- the National Review. So it was, yeah. it was Rich Lowry, the National yeah. Review. And there's been like 50 articles like this over the last year where it's like, look, look at the unemployment rate. It's fine. It's like, actually, it's higher than Massachusetts. 
uh, Florida unemployment is not that great. I mean, it's better than some, no worse than most. Um, you're going to sacrifice like tens of thousands of people for two points on your unemployment rate. Okay, good luck with that. Uh, and I think people are tired of the constant situation of like death and dying. Um, this situation is really starting to affect people who don't have COVID when they need to go to the hospital. Um, you know, not just like there are places where the ICUs are full and you have to wait eight hours to get your appendix taken out. It's more also like you just, you go to, you go to the, the hospital for something and you're, you're surrounded by COVID patients. I mean, that, that's like, that's not a good situation. Um, people then become fearful of taking other kinds of risks. You know, like, do I want to get into a car today? Um, if there's nowhere to take me, if, if I get into an accident, this kind of stuff, right? Like, so the state has just been like, uh, just devastated by COVID. Georgia's in the same position. Texas is in the same position. Um, and yes, I think that there are, you know, there's a small Republican majority in Florida, slightly larger Republican majority in Texas, even today. Um, but this is not helping them popularity rise. I honestly think DeSantis is in trouble for re-election next year. And he would not be the first governor um, to think that he's like unlocked the magic of, uh, of political fortune in their first term and then start plotting a presidential run only to find out that the people in their own state hate them um, and that, that that doesn't actually play very well nationally. Uh, hello, Chris Christie. So um, yeah, I, I, I think that they, you know, the Republican base is like, is big, you know, um, it's tens of millions of people. And Ron DeSantis has the pure, unadulterated, like heroin-like uh, adulation of those people. Um, and it feels good. I'm sure it feels good to like walk out into a MAGA rally and be like, this is our hero. This, thank you for stopping them from abusing our children with masks and this kind of stuff. Um, and so, yeah, those people are energized, but he's lost the majority even in Florida. It doesn't mean he won't win. Um, but I think as of three months ago, I think he would have walked to re-election. And now I think he's really gonna have a fight on his hands. And that really should say something to them about the impact of their policies in, in purple states, as you were bringing up before, you know, how's this gonna play in, a, in an equally divided state? I think not good if your policies lead to like, you know, hundreds of children dying and, and, and overwhelmed hospitals and people the whole, the rest of the country talking about you like you've lost your minds. Um, you know, this is a public health crisis. People are being driven out of healthcare because they don't want to work in these situations anymore because they're tired of, of risking their lives and, and wearing a, a K95 mask for, for 14 hours at a clip and, and not seeing their families to take care of people who kind of intentionally put themselves in the hospital. And even when they're there, you know, with their dying breath, they're like, this can't be COVID. You know, I took my ivermectin. <laughs> um, and so it's, just, it's nuts, right? Like DeSantis yeah, is out there being like, we got to give everybody monoclonal antibodies, you know, send them to their houses, put them in the mail. And it's like, what if, you what if they just got vaccinated, man? Then they wouldn't need monoclonal antibodies and they wouldn't need to go take horse to warmer and they wouldn't need to gargle antiseptic. And it's just like, it feels like every week these idiots are trying some other thing. Um, you know what I mean? Like, what if we blew up our houses? Does, does rubble cure COVID? Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. It's just such a mystery. But I don't think he's not having a good month, this guy. Uh, it's because it he's linked himself to madness. All right, we'll close uh, with uh, an explanation of what the heck's going on with France. Uh, I, I, I think I discovered this last night. The New York Times was sending me updates. Ding, France enraged. And it, uh, it hung around as an issue long enough to be the... Uh, 
<laughs> front page. I'm laughing. I mean, this country is so obsessed with its own insanity that I often forget there's a rest of the world out there. Uh, and so anyway, a U.S. defense pact with Australia enrages France. Um, please explain this uh, one to us, David. Uh, why is France so enraged? Okay, so I don't know if any of your listeners are from large families with multiple siblings in them, um, but these families tend to have these dynamics where like two or three of the siblings are really close and like one of them gets left out all the time. Um, that's like France with NATO um, and, and France with like the UK and, and the US and Australia. France has always felt super left out by how close the UK and the US are. Um, you know, people, people like to lump all these countries in together as like equal allies, but we've always had a contentious relationship with France um, since the Second World War. You know, France like pulled out of NATO at one point. They only fully rejoined NATO um, under Sarkozy. And, um, you know, they have their own defense industry that they're very jealous of. Uh, France is proof that even like 200 years from now, when the U.S. is like one eighth the size of India and China, there are still going to be a bunch of like dead enders who are like, remember Afghanistan? We were great once. Uh, we've got to sell these submarines, man. So what happened was like the Australians decided they liked our submarines better. Boo-hoo. You know, um, this is probably the most jingoistic I'm ever going to sound on this show. But it's just such yeah. a ridiculous controversy, you know. Um, and like Biden, you know, in, in a situation where we need every single vote in this country to save democracy, Biden is not going to be like, yeah, I'm going to torch this deal, uh, which could lead to a bunch <laughs> of people in some conflict and mad at me because the French are upset about it. It's like, no, make better submarines, man. I'm sorry, but, uh, but that's the way it is. If the Australians want our submarines, that's, that's what they want. And I think the Biden administration is happy because, um, you know, there's some sense, Australia is like, it's all alone out there, you know, that's just with, with China. I'm sorry, New Zealand is there too, great military power. Um, and, uh, <laughs> Maybe the Australians are just feeling dyspeptic because they've all been locked in their houses for 18 months. I mean, that's like a, another story for another show. I have a first cousin in Australia, and he has been in lockdown with his toddler for, like, forever. It's The, the, the policies down there are pretty, are pretty out there. Um, <laughs> Why did we laugh people are, at his, his situation? But, uh. It's crazy. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's just uh, the French are upset that we, we undercut them on this deal. I think there's probably some blame to go around in the state department for not like preparing them for this or if they felt blindsided by it or whatever. But, um, you know, we don't owe the French anything in terms of those contracts. Um, in fact, they're a competitor in, in terms of arms sales. I, obviously I wish that, um, <laughs> I wish that we would all cut our arms industries uh, by about 97%, but, uh, but it is what it is out there. And so, um, it's just like this another historical instance where the French think that we are secretly in league with the British and this time with the Australians. Um, and I, well, we are, I mean, it's like, yeah, like we are, like, I do like sibling better. I'm sorry. Uh, I don't have to invite you to dinner every time I have them over. That's the way it is. So, um, lurking over all of this is China. Right. Um, and I think the Biden administration sense that they, um, they don't want, they don't seem to want to walk back some of the, um, the escalation that, that Trump did vis-a-vis -vis China, but they, but they do want to shore up this sort of traditional military economic alliance that we had in, in the Pacific. Um, 
and, and to not deliberately alienate various allies. And so getting the Australians back in, back in our good graces after the Trump administration was an important goal of Biden, um, who, you know, who clearly sees the competition with China as what is going to define the next 100 years. Mm-hmm. So that's another story for another day, but we yeah, wanted no, the I Australians to have whole. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I'm looking forward to, I've really come to appreciate watching the uh, MAGA's uh, counteroffensives on all these issues. Uh, we've talked a great deal uh, on the show about Nicki Minaj and how she's been embraced, the rapper, uh, by Fox uh, because of her testimony about her cousin's friend who has swollen testicles. Uh, that's been a, a favorite topic of the show for a while. So, and now she's just beloved by Fox all of a sudden. I, just, I love it when rappers say something outrageous on behalf of like Trump and all of a sudden MAGA falls in love with the rapper. It happened with Ice Cube as well. So uh, I'm curious to see the spin MAGA will have on this because as you know, MAGA and uh, it, its uh, antecedents despise France. And I don't know if you remember Freedom Fries. Uh, I forget which instant when the Republicans were, I can't even remember the fight, but Republicans wouldn't call them French fries. Uh, they would call them Freedom Fries. It was the, it was the Iraq war. What's was, that? France would not side with us when we wanted to invade Iraq. I see. France, okay. France yeah. opposed our invasion of Iraq. And so in the congressional like lunchroom or whatever, they decided to take French fries off the menu and replace them with freedom fries. Um, if you remember, in the, if you read the National Review in the late 90s, early 2000s, there was a guy named Jonah Goldberg who used to write a series of columns about the French calling them cheese-eating surrender monkeys. Um, and um, so just like the, like the American right, like, despises France, you know? So I don't know, I don't know what sort of like rhetorical jujitsu they could employ here to take the side of France in this dispute, because then they'd have to be opposing, um, you know, American oh, arms manufacturers. I don't really see them doing that, but they'll come up with something. I'm sure they'll come. They're shameless. Uh, I mean, they, uh, I'm now, I think I may have quoted, uh, this man to you the last time in the show. I quote him all the time. He's a, a frequent guest, uh, on our show. Uh, Sam Holloway is his name, and he's really one of our uh, leftiest, leftiest guests, even beyond you or me. I love him dearly. He's a dear friend of mine, Sam Holloway. Uh, And I'm always pointing out the hypocrisy of the Republicans, and he always says to me, uh, Ben, fascists don't care if you call them hypocrites. They only care about winning. And uh, I go, Sam Holloway, you're a brilliant man. And uh, (laughs) so I'm just waiting for it. You're right. It's going to be a tough one. It's going to be a lot harder. Uh, than I can't something. wait. We'll talk about it next time. Yeah, the next time. It's going to be harder than embracing <laughs> Nicki Minaj, that's for sure. All right, uh, uh, David, it's good to talk to you as always. And I'd, I think I'm going to headline this this particular show. Dave, uh, David Ferris looks on the bright side because this is as cheery as you and I have been in a long time. One victory in California. What a mirror. You know, it was a month ago we were pondering – Larry Elder appointing Diane Feinstein's successor. At least we don't have to worry about that, right? That California sunshine, it does you good, you know? Lifts the mood. I don't yeah, know what else to say. Does you good. <laughs> Thanks for having me on, Ben. Appreciate it. Uh, yeah, it's always a blast talking to you. That's David Ferris from Roosevelt University. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Mm-hmm.